0: John 4:27 through 42 Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, "What do you seek?" or "Why are you talking to her?" So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, "Come, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months and then the harvest comes? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower... And the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I had ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Lord, It is never a light matter to open up your word and worship you as we read and study and think through these things but it's a delightful matter even in the serious issue that it is and so lord we pray that your holy spirit would fill us This evening that we might have minds that are keen to think about the truths that we're talking about here. And our hearts would just be invigorated to take these things that we're thinking and take them into our heart that they become part of us. And then we can apply them not only to our lives, but to people around and about us as well. Lord, all of this we ask for your glory and your name's sake as you do all of the work, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would walk out of here knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, it behooves us, since we're right here in the middle of the chapter, to. Remind ourselves of what's taking place, right? Just then his disciples came back. Well, just when? Well, if you remember the story in John 4, Jesus, he was in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he had the meeting with Nicodemus there at night on the roof of somebody's house. We don't know who. But they had that interchange, exchange, pardon me, back and forth about the need for people to become born again. That wonderful passage that we get, of course, the most famous Bible verse of all, John 3.16, from. And then after that, we saw that Jesus left Jerusalem, headed down the mountains where Jerusalem is situated, and into the area where the river of Jordan lies, down that feeds into the Dead Sea. And Jesus went out into this more barren place than, of course, Jerusalem is, or lots of other places in Israel are, in order to preach. And also, his disciples were baptizing people out there. And then John the Baptist and his disciples, remember, had that discussion at the end of John 3. Aren't you jealous, John, that Jesus is now baptizing more people than you are? And of course, you remember that passage. Jesus says that, pardon me, John says of Jesus that he must increase and I must decrease. And from that place of being out into this arid region, he left there. And then it would have made much more sense if he was going to head north to the Sea of Galilee to just head right on up the river. Head right on up, there was a road that led on actually both sides of the Jordan River. And either one Jesus could have taken to get to Galilee. And it would have been much quicker. But remember in the beginning of John chapter 4, it said Jesus must go through Samaria. And that was a weird thing that we discovered. Because Samaria was not a place where Jews would go if they could do anything to avoid it. Because remember, when the ten northern tribes rebelled against the Lord and against God's anointed king from the two southern tribes, oh, long, long, long before Jesus, those ten northern tribes quickly fell into idolatry and worshipping of these false gods. And in doing so, angered God, and his wrath was kindled against them. And God brought the nation of Assyria against the nation of Israel, those ten northern tribes, conquered them, and then displaced many of them. And then took other displaced peoples from the rest of the Assyrian Empire and resettled them there in that land, Thus, as it were, at least in certain portions of the land, repopulating the people with a half-breed people. Not Jew, not Assyrian, but something of a mix of the two, which became the Samaritan people. But these Samaritans wanted to still worship God, and so they requested a priest be sent down so that they could offer sacrifices and worship. And of course, the priests that were sent were not traditional Jewish priests, but in fact, ones who had brought a twisted and perverted form of Judaism along with them. A Judaism that would remove the majority of the Old Testament scriptures, only leaving the first Five books for them to have as their canon. And then from there, worshipping not on Mount Zion, where God had set up his temple, but rather on Mount Gerizim. Which in the book of Deuteronomy was a place of blessing. So at least they had that kind of going for them. But in fact, it was a false worship. And as Jesus entered that land and needed to go through that land, it was... For this meeting with this woman. Now, you'll remember that not only did Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, but they didn't think very fondly of women either. <laughs> you'll remember that one of the great Jewish phrases of the day was that a woman should not even be taught the law. Or a man who was a Jewish leader, one like Nicodemus from the previous chapter, Might have even prayed one of those prayers that we find so repugnant. God, thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. Jesus had to go through Samaria. To meet not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And not only a Samaritan woman, but as we find in the course of this story with this woman, she was not of the highest of reputations, right? Jesus ends up calling her out and saying, go call your husband to come here and talk to me. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he says, right. You have had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. There's a reason this woman was out there in the middle of the day pulling water, drawing water from the well and not early in the cool of the morning and we just found out why. Because she didn't want to go out there with all of the other women drawing water in the cool of the day. There was a stigma and there was a shame and you can understand why she wouldn't want to go and associate with the more reputable women of Sychar. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. You see, this great contrast exists here in John as he shows us that the greatest in the nation of Israel, at least worldly speaking, would have been a Pharisee like the fellow Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, for all intents and purposes at that time, seemed like a good one, right? Now, there were some stinkers. There are plenty of those. But Nicodemus seemed to genuinely fear God and genuinely want to worship God. And so here you have a man in the highest stratus of society and Jewish culture in that day and age. And Jesus immediately from there goes and needs to pass through a land that the Jews want to have nothing to do with to talk to a person of a gender they don't want to have anything to do with who's of a reputation that they would be appalled with. And the contrast John gives us is that Jesus is, like it says here at the end of our passage, the savior of the world. There is nobody outside of the bounds of this redemptive message. Jesus went where it would have been absolutely appalling for him to go and to preach his message. And he tells his disciples here and instructs them, the fields are white for the harvest, showing them that his message is for all peoples everywhere at all times. You see, there is nobody, nobody, nobody that is out of bounds when it comes to the preaching and proclamation of this message. You can go anywhere. The deepest, darkest part of Africa, the deepest, darkest part of the Amazon. You can go to Indonesia, Laos, Cambodia, China. They're going to try to get you, but you can go there and preach the gospel and know and know and know and know and know that God has his people that are needing to hear that message to come to him. The gospel will be effectual and it will be for peoples from, like I said, every tribe and tongue and nation. And so Jesus sits down with this woman from another nation, from another religion, from a different cultural background. In fact, you don't even know exactly what kind of background because of the interbreeding that had happened with these other cultures. But Jesus goes to her and lovingly walks her through this message of salvation, saying, you came here to draw water, but I'll tell you what, if you drink of the water I will give you, it will well up within you, a spring of everlasting life. And she thinks, golly, (laughs) that sounds awful good. I don't want to come down here and draw water anymore. Give me this water. hard work to come down here in the heat of the day and of course Jesus says no this is where he introduces his knowledge about her go call your husband and she says oh you know about me I think you're a prophet he says well I'm a little more than that lady that's my paraphrase (laughs) If you knew who it was who was saying, you would ask. But even more than that, I am the Messiah. And of course, I'm paraphrasing so we can get to our text here. And she says, the Messiah, huh? And the Lord does this wonderful work of taking her from her point of contact, which is a woman who is coming down to draw water and draws out of her her real need. Her need is eternal life. The disciples come back then, just as he's revealing the fact to her that he is the Christ. And this is a side note. This is parentheses. God's timing's perfect. Disciples didn't come back any earlier. Disciples didn't come back any later. Disciples didn't come and interrupt the meeting in the middle when they were talking about water and she was still confused about what was happening. No, they came back after the point where Jesus revealed who he was and apparently the Holy Spirit had been working in this woman this whole time and brought her to the place where she was confronted with her sin, rightly so, but now she also is confronted with her Savior, who can cleanse her from all of her unrighteousness and she puts her faith and trust in this guy who's standing here in front of her and suddenly she has a well of living water welling up within inside her. How do we know that? Verse 28, the woman left her water jar. She came to draw water. The most basic of human needs, Right? I don't even get up here hardly without one of these bad boys. Because I know sooner or later I'm going to get parched while I'm preaching. And so I know that I'm going to need water. Simple, basic, elemental part of life. This woman came down to meet, have her basic physical needs met by her own strength, her own effort, her own work. And Christ revealed to her, not only does this water not satisfy completely, but you need a water that you can't work for that will satisfy you eternally. <laughs> That's a good message. And she is so moved By the fact of what Jesus has just done, I believe repenting of her sins and putting her faith in Christ that she doesn't even consider her water bottle anymore. Well, bottle, it's a big, huge, fat jar she would have had to carry back. And she leaves it there and hightails it back to town and she comes to everybody and says, come, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And of course, you know she already believes this is the Christ. I... When I became a Christian, I talked about this a little bit this morning, but when I became a Christian, I don't know. Some of you have been Christian your whole life. Praise God. Wonderful. I love that's my favorite kind of testimony. Somebody who has been a Christian their whole life, I haven't. But I do remember when I became a Christian. I do remember, I remember it vividly. I remember the day, I remember the hour, I remember where I was sitting and what room I was in. But I also remember how that I didn't want to necessarily go back to my hometown because I was fearful of what people would say now that I was changed, but I couldn't not tell them. The gospel was true. The gospel had changed me. I was a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And now I did want to go back and tell my friends, although there was a little bit of fear about talking to them, but I went to them and shared the gospel with them. Now, unfortunately, the whole city didn't come out to see Jesus when I went and shared with them, but that's okay. The response isn't up to me, is it? That's the Holy Spirit's job. But my responsibility is to go and to say, come and see a man who knows everything about me. Could this be the Christ? Come see Jesus Christ. Come be confronted with your sin. Come and have the truth of who you really are revealed to yourself. And then you will believe and know and see that he is a genuine savior. Who cares for you more than you could ever possibly know. Who has done more for you than you could ever possibly do. And this savior is a complete and radical and whole savior. Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Romans 10 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Isn't it interesting when she goes back, she tells them all the word of God that she kind of knew. She kind of sums up everything Jesus has just said to her. Here's a man who told me everything I ever did. He confronted me with my sin. He revealed things to me that he shouldn't have known. Could he be the Christ? Jesus revealed himself to be the Christ. She went and she proclaimed the word of God as she knew it. That's encouraging because you know what? In our proclamations of the gospel, we're going to not get all the wording exactly right. And we might not be able to quote all of the Romans wrote. Or you might not know the entirety of Acts chapter 13, which is maybe one of the greatest evangelistic messages in the early church age. That's okay. That's okay. We can come to people and share with them the simplicity of the gospel message. Here's the gospel message. God created the world and he created it in perfect, perfect Bliss. He created man with the ability to choose between good and evil. The only ones with apparently a true free will. And when Adam and Eve came along and they partook of that fruit of the garden, that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they plunged themselves into sin and all of mankind along with it. So that while we are still image bearers of God, every single one of us bears the image of God. It's marred and twisted, and deformed, and misshapen. And we know the truth of God's word. That's why we have guilt when we do wrong. We know God's law stands against us. That's why our consciences bear witness against us when we do things wrong. We know we need a savior. Everybody does. Everywhere, at any point, at any time. But God saw fit not to leave humanity in their sin but chose to come into this world and he would replace Adam he would take his place and where Adam chose to sin and to fail Christ would choose to follow God's will and follow it perfectly And in choosing to follow God's will and following it perfectly, he was able, because he was perfectly God and perfectly man, to bear the wrath of God that all the sinners who would ever be saved deserve to bear. And he would do it individually because he's human. And he'd be able to do it for all of those peoples who would ever believe because he's God. And the resurrection is proof of that matter. It's why the resurrection is so good he death could not hold him because he had never sinned he bore the wrath of God for sin indeed but he himself never sinned so his substitutionary atonement his taking my place on the cross perfectly satisfied God and God's judgment that I have so deservedly earned that's the gospel This is the message. This is, you see what Christ did for this woman. Now he did it before he had gone to the cross, but it was still effectual we find here. Look down at verse 39. We'll come back to the disciples part of this in a minute. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world." Her testimony is that you need to come and hear this man. You need to come and see this man. Is he the Christ? And of course, her, the implication is come meet the Christ. But they believed enough to come down and to hear Jesus, but once they met him and heard him for themselves? Look, you, you can't hear the words of Jesus and go away unchanged. I know you've heard me say that before it bears repeating, doesn't it? You hear the words of Jesus and you cannot go away from those words unchanged. You will either be hardened and hear the words of Christ and your heart as a heart of stone will deflect those words of Christ and you will Put up that wall a little bit higher or you will like to use biblical language there from Romans chapter one. Take that truth of Christ and suppress it. Press it down so you don't have to see it, hear it, think about it and continue on your own sinful journey or you will be changed for the positive. You will experience that conviction And it'll, oh, let's be honest, it'll be painful. But it'll only be painful for a short period of time. I'm sure she was uncomfortable for a few minutes as Jesus brought up her uh, licentiousness. I'm sure it wasn't uh, a point in her life that she, at those moments she was living them, was looking favorably upon, right? She was probably grieved and like, kind of thing and of course that obfuscation of oh i perceive you're a prophet and entered into this theological discussion with her ensued which christ of course used again to draw her further to himself as he said those who worship me will worship in spirit and in truth you can't stay the same you will be moved one direction or another. You will be moved one way or another. So they say to her, it is no longer because of what you've said, but we have heard for ourselves and we know indeed this is the Savior of the world. Which must have been great news to these Samaritans. The Savior of the world, I mean... This is what they've been longing for, too. A different version, a different way of the, a different understanding of it. But when he comes, he sets everything right. When he comes, he explains everything rightly to them. And he indeed is the savior of the world. Meanwhile, do you forget about those guys? Meanwhile, the disciples. Oh, you love these guys. The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now remember, the story began with Jesus sitting down at the well because he was wearied from his journey, and he sent his disciples into town to buy food. So they went in to buy food knowing he had no food. Right? Right? So they come back with food and they urge him to eat. And then Jesus, wonderful Jesus, takes them on a similar journey like he took this woman at the well. Not maybe a journey in terms of leading them to salvation, but a journey in terms of discovery of something new that they needed to have revelation about. Especially in terms of their mission that they're going to partake of when Jesus leaves this earth. Namely, establishing the church, right? Going into all the world and preaching the gospel, preaching the kingdom in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, baptizing, teaching them to observe everything that Jesus had taught, even to the end of the age. So rabbi eat, but Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about so the disciples said to one another did somebody bring him something to eat so the woman said to him are you greater than our father Jacob who drew water from this well you don't have anything to even draw from the water (laughs) we are so thick (laughs) we really are and you know what I'm a hundred thousand percent sure that i would have been right there with the disciples saying somebody brought this guy food jesus told us like does that woman did she take our job is she receiving our blessing right you know that's where their mind goes they're constantly arguing about i'm the better one the kingdom no i'm the best no i'm the best and here they're like who gave this guy food that that was our job So the disciples said to one another, did somebody bring him something to eat? And then Jesus, oh, I love it, takes this opportunity to teach them a wonderful spiritual truth. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I... I, there, there's a nervousness that grips me every time I preach. This morning it was there, right before church it's here. It could be any time, anywhere. There's this, th- this deep anxiety that grips me. And it, 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 there's an element where it's probably an attack from the enemy. And there's an element where it's probably my own flesh. But there's a part of me that's like, you can't get up there and do this. And then there's big periods in my life. There's things that happen, and and it could be in church life, and I get very discouraged, and I get very depressed, and I think to myself, maybe it's time to call it quits. Maybe the Lord in His sovereignty had me here at the church at this particular time for this particular ministry to get to to this particular point. And maybe it's just time for me to up and go. And I feel this deep darkness within me. And 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 I think, ah, maybe maybe it's time. And my wife, God bless her, she is so wonderful, she says to me, What are you stupid? (laughs) What are you gonna do? You preach! You're going to be miserable if you don't preach. You've got to get up, you've got to get back there. What are you doing? Thinking these thoughts. You know, I mean it's it's right. And there's every once in a while where she just kind of spiritually grabs me by my shirt right and bangs me around. And I need that, and I'm thankful for that. And then you know what happens? I get up here after sitting there before the sermon and I feel this weight of what's about to happen. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. Or this period of time where I'm thinking I'm so discouraged, maybe this is time where I just wipe my hands. And And then I get up here and I preach because it burns in my bones. Right? Jeremiah, I talked about him earlier this morning as well. This particular guy, he was so discouraged. Listen, Jeremiah's a doozy. He preached and he preached and he preached and he preached for almost his entire adult life, and one person followed him. That is hard. That's a hard ministry. Baruch is the only dude. Everyone else hated his guts. They threw him in a stinking pit. It wasn't a little more than a pit. It was bad. They wanted to kill him. They hated Jeremiah. But Jeremiah said this. He was complaining to the Lord one day. And he said, Lord, why you got me out here preaching? They hate it, they hate me, I hate it, forget it, Lord, I'm done. I'm done, right? And if it was one of these visual representations, you could see Jeremiah kind of tearing his clothes and wiping his hands, and he starts to walk away. But at the end of that passage in chapter 3, he says, Oh, but God's word burns in my bones. Oh, I love that passage. It grips me because I can feel that. And I know that when I get up here and I've prayed and I've studied and I've thought through and I've asked the Lord, Lord, this is your word. You deliver it to your people. And I come up here and I preach God's word. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in a little tiny way, a little itty bitty way, a little crumb of a way, I get to understand and participate in the work of Christ. And I get to be nourished by the spiritual food that God provides as I do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. It's not proud work. It's not self-glorifying. My goal is to glorify God, right? I am but a humble servant. I am, to use the words of Mark, just doing my duty. But you see, with that duty comes with it Food for my soul. And you get to receive the benefit of that as well because the Lord has gifted this church so that I can provide for you that which will encourage and strengthen you. Because the goal of the pastor really is to build you up for the work of the ministry so that you glorify God and all glory goes to Him, you see. I don't get glory out of this, He gets glory, I get fed. I get spiritual nourishment. Jesus' will, and that is just a simple illustration. I am no way equating myself to Christ. You understand. But what I'm trying to do is help illustrate how Jesus Christ could say the food that he eats is to do the will of him who sent me it is satisfying, it is soul-filling, it is life-giving, it is encouragement and vibrancy to our souls, because God is the one who has given us this work to do, and to do it and to bring pleasure and joy to God brings pleasure and joy to me as a person. But it's Christ's will to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Remember there in Hebrews chapter 12 where it says that he went to the cross and he endured the cross despising the shame. Remember that? Despise is a harsh word. But Christ despised the shame of the cross. But why did he do it? Why then, if he so despised that wooden gibbet, did he go and endure the wrath and pain that he endured on the cross? Well, Hebrews doesn't leave us wondering. It was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy was to do the Father's will. Accomplish the Father's work that he sent him to do. Now, we receive the benefits of that, right? Because we are that joy. We are the ones who receive this salvation. Christ's accomplishment of his work was the redemption of our souls. But we are not the end, you see. We are the trophy that displays the ends. The work of Christ is the glory of God the Father. And the entire work of salvation is this Trinitarian work that glorifies each and every member of the Trinity over and over and over ad nauseum for infinity. And it is the will of Christ to have come and accomplished this. And he did it, right? John chapter 17. Remember that prayer that he prays there? He prays right before the cross. He says, Father, I have done what you've asked me to do. He accomplished it at all. So much so that he could say on the cross, it is finished. Then he turns to his disciples and he says, do you not say that there are yet four months and then the harvest comes? And so they would have understood this agricultural metaphor that they were in the point in the growth cycle where there were still four months yet out before the harvest, right? So whatever they were growing would have been what? Kind of knee high maybe, right? Isn't that a saying? Knee high by the 4th of July for the corn and you want it to get so hey yay tall before you go and you harvest it? Do you like my technical farming terms there? <laughs> but here's the picture I picture. I picture that... I'm gonna use wheat. I wheat. I, the wheat is growing, and it's about yay high. But yet here come all of these people out from this city. And they're wearing their white linen because it's a hot, arid climate. And so they wouldn't be wearing these big, heavy garments. But they're coming down. And it isn't harvest time yet. But them coming down looks like they're blowing in the wind as they come down. And Jesus, this wonderful wordsmith, turns to his disciples and say, My food is to do the will of the Father. And look, here comes some food for you. Look, the fields are white for the harvest. Lift up your eyes. Look, here they come. The fields are white for the harvest. He's not talking about the plants. He's talking about the townsfolk who are coming down to hear Jesus because of the word of this woman who said, could this be the Christ? He told me everything that I ever did. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Two points as we close here. First of all, Jesus quotes Amos chapter 9. Never think the Old Testament is irrelevant. If you're a quick flipper, turn to Amos 9. If you're not, you can hear me quoted. It. It's after Joel and Hosea in the Minor Prophets. But Hosea, pardon me, did I say Hosea? Amos. Amos chapter 9 is where I'm headed. Amos 9. In that day, verse 11... I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruin and rebuild it as in the days of old. This is talking about prophetically the church. We know that from Acts chapter 15 because they quote it in the very first church council. So the days are coming when the church is established that this is going to take place. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord. Who is Jesus the Savior of? The world. Edom. All the nations that are called by his name. Verse 13, though, is the key. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet with wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. One sows and another reaps. Jesus is taking from that text as he's prophetically speaking about the establishment of the new covenant namely the church, the building of the church. He says, one sows and another reaps. Now, we know this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, right, where the church there is divided, and there's some saying, I am of Paul, and some saying, yeah, well, I'm an Apollo guy, and some are saying, yeah, well, I follow Peter. He's the first pope, you know. <laughs> That's a joke. And then there's always those ones that say, well, I'm of Jesus, Right? There's always that guy or guys. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We are all one. One might sow and one might reap and one might water and one might tend, but we are all one in Christ. And we are all, like Jesus says here, receiving the wages, gathering fruit of eternal life, and we all rejoice together in the doing of this. Jesus says, one sows and another reaps, and we all get to rejoice in the work that's accomplished and taken place as the church is built up, as people are saved, as the kingdom of God grows and advances. But finally, and I love this point that we're closing with in verse 38, you reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor." This is a biblical model from the very beginning. Abraham was given a land that he absolutely had no claim to. God said, get up from your land and go to a land I will show you and I will give you and I will give to your children on after you. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says that the nation of Israel upon their exodus from Egypt and having wandered for 40 years in the wilderness are to go in and take the land that is theirs. And Joshua in chapter 24, after the conclusion of that conquering of the land, says, this is the land God has given us, and we didn't plant these vineyards, and we didn't plant these orchards, and we didn't build these houses, and we didn't build these roads, and the entire infrastructure of the entire nation was given over to the people of Israel as a gift from God. They received what they didn't labor for. Now, granted, they went in and they conquered the people, but they did not labor for all of that stuff that came along with it. They received the blessings from God. And listen, the same holds true spiritually speaking for us. What was physically true for the nation of Israel was a shadow and a type of us for the kingdom of God. Beloved, we might share the gospel with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our loved ones, or whoever they are, or maybe to the farthest reaches of the world we go. We might share the gospel, but it is not us that's doing the work. Beloved, it is God who's doing the work. It is the Holy Spirit that is doing the work. It is God who is taking his word by the Holy Spirit and applying it to that person's life who I'm speaking with. I might get to lead somebody to the Lord, but it is not me who's saving them. I might get to reap, but it is not me who is sown. It might be me who sows a seed as I preach a gospel message from the Bible, but I'm not the one who does any of the work. We are entering into another's labor. And this is one of the most glorious truths we have as Christians. As a preacher... I get to enter into a work that I am not laboring for. I trust the Holy Spirit to take the message that I preach and apply it to your lives. Good night. If I thought that was my responsibility, yeah, I would quit. And talk about discouragement. If I thought it was me that had to work you up and get you moving and get you changed, (laughs) and barely change a diaper, (laughs) much less anybody's soul. And the same holds true for each one of you, too. God has called each and every one of you to a ministry. And some of you, it's evangelism. Some of you, it's deacon ministry. Some of you, it's some other kind of ministry here within the church. Some of you, it's just to your own families. Praise God, those are all wonderful, glorious ministries. And we all enter into the work that God has set before us, laboring, but not with the work that we are doing, but the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through us as we labor for his glory and his grace and his great namesake. So as we close, I want to encourage you with the words that as you set out from here and you think God's thoughts about this passage to consider what God has called you to. And if it's something in terms of evangelism, then praise God and go out and start sharing the gospel. And if it's in terms of some other area of ministry, then praise God and look to where you can co-labor with God, where you can pray, Lord, this is what I believe you've called me to. Give me the strength, the word to do it, and it will be food for your soul. And that's what each and every one of us needs and needs so desperately, but yet it brings us that greatest joy. Amen. Father God, We pray that you would encourage each and every one of us because this is a message that we as Christians need to be reminded of regularly over and over. The fact that as we labor, we are really laboring with the labor that or the strength that you provide for us in your Holy Spirit and by your Spirit. Take these truths and take this great and glorious gospel message and May we receive this spiritual food from it so that we can be strengthened, that we can be nurtured, and that we could grow in your grace, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.